Russell Kurt. This is the Prairie Farm Podcast. I've been out here in Iowa restoring or reconstructing prairies since 1999 is when we purchased some property in Green Township, Iowa County. And prior to that, um, beginning in 1970, I taught biology, mainly, but however, mainly the ecology courses, plant ecology, general ecology, so on, uh, at a community college called College of DuPage. And uh, I retired officially in 1997. Upon retiring in 1997, my wife was a little bit younger than me. She was still teaching. So for the heck, but I just, we decided to buy a little property out here in Iowa, again, 1999, and starting a prairie stuff out here. I was maybe 11 or 12, and my grandma came to my house and uh, shared with me some pretty exciting news. Her and my grandpa were going to be managing a motel about 30 minutes, 40 minutes from where uh, I was currently living. And she was very excited about it. The Crest Motel, Country Inn in Williamsburg, Iowa, right off of I-80. It was a lot of fun. We'd go and visit and we'd stay in the motel, me and some of my cousins or my siblings. And um, while they were there, they were managing there, they met many very interesting people. And maybe the peak uh, of interest was with an incredible man named uh, Russell Kurt, who uh, is not only an prairie enthusiast and uh, someone who I've learned all the prairie from my dad has also learned things from Russell Kurt, but also he was a professor. He's an author of a very helpful book if you are trying to learn about prairie. Uh, and, and just one of the kindest, gener- most generous men you will ever meet. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have Russell Kurt. Thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate it. I uh, first became really interested in prairie in 1972 when I met a person by the name of Ray Schulenberg at the Morton Arboretum in Lyle, Illinois. And this Morton Arboretum is only about three miles from where I taught, so it was very convenient to go back and forth and ask questions and find out more about prairie. He, Ray was... Um, very enthusiastic about prairie. That's basically what he did, what he lived for, I would say, almost. And then uh, after getting, more or less getting a little background from him, we began restoring prairie at the College of DuPage in 1974, which I did until the time I retired in 1997 officially. However, I stayed on for a few years after that, managing the prairie. And, um, but anyway, going back to the year 1999, when we first purchased property out here in Green Township, again, Iowa County, um, I wanted to uh, have a place where I could come out and start my own prairie. And Iowa being fairly close to Illinois is about 280 miles apart wasn't too bad I could go back see my wife and kids when I wanted to so that's about the year when I started out here 1999 and what what did the land look like when you purchased it well when I purchased this parcel which is 37 acres um most of it with uh probably 20 some acres was in was recently planted into 
red clover and uh, brome. Mm. And that was just seeded into it. So I kind of wanted to hurry up and get going, planting a prairie plant seed by seeds kind of as quickly as I could. And um, some of the seeds I brought from Illinois, a lot of them were cleanings. That, And then as, as much as I could around here, I collected from areas quite nearby around Marengo, Victor, and they're both in Iowa County and about 25 miles from here, I'm guessing. And so I'm a, kind of a big believer in local genotypes. How, however, yeah. just to repeat, some of the seed sources do come from Illinois where it was very convenient for me to collect them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so Now, what's interesting to me about the timing there, Russell, is when you were starting out getting into prairie in the early to mid-70s, Illinois and Iowa, for that matter, you know, two prairie states. There's been a lot of development since the early 1970s. And I imagine there was probably more prairie, more surviving prairie in both of those states at that time than there probably even is today. So is it kind of a a strange concept to be looking at putting – prairie back on the landscape when it was still getting peeled off uh, in so many other places? Or was that was was the amount of prairie at that time pretty much similar to right now? Um, I'm not all that familiar with Iowa, but they have been uh, different uh, preserves and um, so forth. But in Illinois, I feel that there's probably about as much of it saved now as there was back in the early 70s. I'm sure some of it's been what we call destroyed, but um, there's a lot of prairie preserves in Illinois, in the state of Illinois, at least from the area that I was from, in DuPage County. Sure. And I wish uh, I wish all of you guys could see the prairie he has. I, I know since you're listening on a podcast, it's hard to do that, but his prairie is really, is really astounding. Uh, and, and tons of people, we actually get that a lot. How do I establish and maintain my prairie? What, what are some of the biggest things when you, because you were going into Brome and, and Brome's not an easy thing to get out of there. How, how did you do that? Well, we'll be walking in an area that I planted this prairie in 1999 and it was already seeded into Brome and red clover. And I scattered the seeds. Well, the, first of all, the neighbor, who are still good friends, he dissed it for me just to turn the soil a little bit. This is in March or April. And so we scattered a lot of seeds by hand and saw a few of them come up the first year. But the second year, in the year 2000, I hired um, a Wellman from Wellman Co-op. They came and sprayed it with Roundup in early April. And it's kind of like a miracle happened here. Yeah, so it was kind of tricky, but we got them just while mainly the cool season weeds were coming mm. up, and yeah. the weeds in this case were red clover and brome. Yeah, huh? And and so when you put down prairie, did you put all of the different species you have there now, or did you slowly keep adding them in? Uh, slowly add them in as they become available. Okay. 
what's been your favorite so far that's come through? Oh, I don't think I really have any really favorites anymore, but mm. I like them all. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Probably man. initially, I think the one that really caught my eye initially was purple prairie clover. Mm. But now it's it's another prairie species to me. And yeah. Uh, I don't hold it above or below anything else. Really. Yeah. I read somewhere the other day that big blue stem and little blue stem were the most prevalent uh, species in prairies. Is is that kind of similar in yours, or do you feel like you have other dominant species coming on right now? Well, I think for uh, the Mesic prairie, there probably were the dominant grasses along with Indian grass. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With Indian grass. Indian grass is, is thick. It's... <laughs> I want to interject that I think, um, from my experience, Indian grass is a very good starting grass. And if someone's doing restoring prairie or building their own prairie, mm. Mm, I highly recommend too. Indian grass as one of the grasses to put in. And, and it's not, uh, <clears throat> it's competitive early, but uh, later on as successional things occur, big blue stem and little blue stem will probably outcompete it. But mm-hmm. it's a really good one to get started with for fires and for how many years? I don't know, twenty years, twenty-five. Wow, it's just a good one to start with. Yeah. Would you say any forbs are particularly good to start with? Well, um, one of them that I like are the, the silphiums. That's a genus for a compass plant, prairie oh, yeah. dock, cup plant, and also rosin weed. And one of the reasons why I like that one is when you see the prairie, the prairie starts very slowly. But you can pretty much always tell if you've got a good seeding or not, if something's going to grow, because they come up almost like little sunflower. The cotyledons stick above the ground, like come up like sunflowers. So it's a real easy one to recognize real early Hmm. on. You don't have to be a botanist to recognize it. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a little indicator on on your prairie. I feel like if anyone knows what prairie is potent, it's Kent because he has to walk all of our fields and find out what prairie is in fields where we don't want it. But what about you, Kent? What do you think is like the most pervasive species? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, there's of course weed species. Um, some some what we call weed species are even natives. You know, like uh, mare's tail, for instance, on our farm, and and really you see it all over the place. And a lot of that is probably because it's been, in a way, artificially selected by the use of of herbicides, and it's just you know it's it's herbicide resistant, and so it pops up a lot. So you you know factoring that in, but if you have like a really good clean section of prairie there's there's a couple of parts on our farms that are my favorite it's these these areas where you kind of have two or three fields that right where their boundaries are and they kind of mix together and you almost get like this little you know real small patch of what would prairie would be very much like and in those kinds of areas you really see like uh, a big blue doing well and you see switchgrass doing really well just today i was out looking for for uh carol's uh enemy uh old woolly cup grass uh which is invasive from uh china i think and uh i went around the corner of this 
edge of some Indian grass that we had growing. And here was all the switchgrass that had headed out and shot up that I, I've driven that corner probably, you know, 10 times in the last, the last month. And all of a sudden today, you know, here's all the switchgrass that I didn't realize had gotten started over there. And so uh switchgrass, you know, that can really yeah. you just find that stuff everywhere. But yeah, I'd probably say switchgrass would be, well, big blue would probably be my number one and then follow that up with, with switchgrass. And then also a uh, purple prairie clover, it hides, you don't yeah. really see it till you're right on top of it. But you know, like we were wor- working out in the side of Skarama field, uh, uh, last week getting, uh, and earlier this week, getting out the old big blue and of course looking out for a woolly cup and getting some Indian grass out of there before we harvested. And man, you, every once in a while, you just come across this random purple prairie clover that was growing out in the middle of all this SOG, <laughs> which is crazy. Cause you know, you've got like tight knit fields of yeah. Indian grass. And the only thing that could, that could come into an Indian grass field and establish itself is, you know, big blue, little blue switchgrass side oats those are the only things that are gonna make it but purple prairie clover apparently is also in that list it just shows up in fields yeah it doesn't get choked out which is crazy and you know you look at the dispersal methods too for these seeds you know those adaptations that they have some of them you know are pretty well dependent on an animal carrying it you know either by ingesting it and then and then uh defecating and then the seed is planted elsewhere or um a buffalo uh, carrying ca- yeah, it like catching a it in their, yeah. their hide or their feathers or something like that but uh a lot of what i see the most is the stuff that's distributed by wind you know that's mm-hmm. that's a constant that that gets it moving across the landscape pardon me for interrupting but talking about animal dispersal i caught hell from my wife yesterday about <laughs> running the dogs out in the prairie and they brought back a bunch of tick trefoil with them oh, yeah. <laughs> Carol knew I didn't change my pants from uh, Monday to Tuesday once because I had a whole, whole bunch of Illinois tech sticking to <laughs> sticking to my pants. You know that's expensive. Well, telling me the story that uh, he was trying to keep somebody with a showy tick foil, the Illinois tick foil was. Well, just go out there; it'll find you. Yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. over there in the couch. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so if, if you couldn't quite hear Carol's story, there, Carol's here with us today too. Um, he said if. If uh, you can't find the Illinois tictor foil out in the showy tictor foil or showy out in the out in the the prairie, you just walk out there long enough and it'll come back with you. That's it'll what find, that was Russell's yeah. uh, uh, advice on that. So yeah. that's true. I wanted to just run back to the um, species and in, uh, initial mixtures. When you're, uh, another one that I like, it's is uh, just black eyed Susan. Mm. And often before the end of the first year, that may be start that may flower depending upon what time of the year it was planted. But let's say if it was planted in uh, May, early June, you can often see that blooming in the fall. Whereas um, many species are not even evident at that time. Yeah, yeah. We do a lot, so we do a lot with CRP, and we like to put black-eyed Susan in there oh, yeah. a, a lot. Um, just to reassure the farmers, hey, it, it is coming, you know, because some of them don't realize you got to wait a couple of years to get to get a solid stand, you know. So they, the first year, they're like, "There's nothing out here," you know, and you're like, "Well, yeah, I just got to wait and mow." And uh, but when they see the the black eyed Susan, they have a little bit more yeah, assurance. They, yeah, they have a little, little more confidence in what yeah. you did. Yeah, exactly. Is there anything else that tends to show the first year? 
Mm. Being really, really evident. Uh, that would depend upon one's background and identifying the plant species and so forth. But the ones I mentioned, like the Silphium and uh, the black-eyed Susan Brubeckia, those are pretty evident to anybody. You don't have to be a trained botanist to recognize them. Yeah, it seems like... And the grasses, I don't think... Um, they're, they're difficult to identify when they're little. A lot of people won't be able to. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, so when you were spending... so uh, Well, let me give some context. Russell wrote a book about uh, prairie and the different species. And, oh, thank Kent's got it right here. Prairie Plants of the Midwest, Identification and Ecology. And, I mean, it, it talks about what it looks like and how you can identify them. But at the bottom of every one, it has ecological notes. And those are my favorite part. It talks about what fauna like to, uh, like to eat it, if it's nutritious or not for them, kind of what kind of landscape it'll, it'll hang out in. And uh, I think that's brilliant. But um, one of the things I noticed is uh, I learned uh, a new word in the middle of that. And, uh, and I forgot. Uh, un- Ungulate. Ungulate. Yes. I had to Google. I had to look up what that uh, word meant because you just kept using it in the book and I had no idea what you were talking about. It's the hoofed animal, isn't it? Hoofed mammal. How did, how did you find out what animals liked, like whether animals liked a specific species or not? Did you just watch the animal eat it or not eat it? Sometimes. Um, you know, well, one thing you can always read about it, but I tend to uh, spend a lot of time outdoors I like hunting. I like, I like really like gathering seeds. Yeah. Cause it's kind of like hunting, you know, food gathering. And so, and you just observe a lot of different things. Huh. And a lot of times on the prairie, you're by yourself. And, um, so you can maybe observe more things if you wish. You're not talking to anybody or anything like that. Yeah. Hmm. Do you find, uh, have you worked with Buffalo much at all? No, not at all. Oh, do you know who Bob Jackson is? Heard the name. He did Buffalo way out in Wyoming and Yellowstone or something like that. Now he lives in Southern Iowa. Very interesting. I emailed him a couple of times trying to get on the podcast. So Bob, if you're listening to this, we'd love to have you on the podcast. <laughs> uh, Cause he's just an interesting guy. He's uh, they called him uh, action Jackson. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess he was just as cowboy as it came. And, but uh, Buffalo are very interesting to me just cause they're very, um, I don't know. I, I, they seem a lot smarter than cows. <laughs> the cows seem kind of dumb to me, but uh, buffalo seem very aware of what's going on, and they have more personality. And but yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Do you find like when you've been spending your time in prairie, do you find that it has affected the rest of your life in terms of you know just feeling connected to outdoors and whatnot? It consumes a major part of my time. Well, that would affect your life, I guess. So you mentioned uh, you enjoy enjoy going out and spending time in your prairie hunting and and collecting seeds. If uh, well, let me ask it this way: maybe Do you feel that that has helped you maintain your prairie more closely. Uh, we were joking around before we we recorded about the importance of pulling weeds to keep your your prairie healthy. But do you feel like participating with it instead of just standing there and looking at it and and uh, you actually being in with the prairie and and uh, you know really almost treating it like uh, somebody who 
was living on the prairie at one time. Uh, do you think that has helped you develop a deeper connection to your, your prairie ground? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Um, also, um, I spend a lot of time on removal of weeds. I don't do as much hand pulling as I used to do, but I try to do a lot of selective herbiciding hmm. for some things, for example, like sweet clovers and other uh, non-natives that you got to watch out for. There's a certain amount of them that I always try to get rid of. Hmm. Do you, yeah. so if you had one piece of advice for people maintaining a prairie, so they've already got it established. They just want to make sure it stays pretty. What, what would you, uh, what would you tell them? Eliminate the weeds if possible. Now a weed, we define, uh, there's a lot of different common definitions, but a weed to me is a plant that thrives in disturbed and degraded conditions. It's not part of a stable ecosystem. So there are a lot of disturbances. Some can be natural, like floods, wind, heavy winds, or they can be like from a tractor or a four-wheeler. Those are man-made disturbances. And often the weeds are the first ones that come in and thrive. And and some of them may outcompete the, you know, the uh, native plants. Hmm. At, at what point does a weed become a healthy part of the ecosystem? Probably as far as I'm concerned, never. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. I, I'm thinking back to like the most recent ice age and, and the glacier receding and the things that popped up were prairie and would those have been considered weeds? I don't think anything anybody was writing about or thinking about it at that time. <laughs> yeah. No one was trying to no, control the We probably landscape. interjected what we feel a weed is. Yeah. And it just comes from studying a lot of, um, you know, good native areas that's been well taken care of. and, and uh, well, That's a good point. Then the weedy areas, you know, like along the edges of cornfields and roads and stuff like that. Yeah. That's where a lot of weeds come in. What are some of the best native areas you've you've observed? Here in Iowa, I'd like to, I don't know the exact names of them anymore, but I know the uh, the Lust Hills, I've been out there. That was several years ago. There's a Neil Smith, I think, here in Iowa. No, I've never been there, but I've heard of it. Um, currently, our daughter's up at Cedar Falls doing a study on a prairie that's owned by the Nature Conservancy, and she would know the places more so than I. Than I I've been to I? some of Pardon me? Is she with the University of Northern Iowa? I know they're up there. She went there for her master's. Okay. Yeah. Cool. There's a, we have a good friend, Laura Walter, that works mm. there. She's in their um, Tallgrass Prairie Center. She's awesome. Our daughter would probably know her. Oh, cool. Cool. That's, yeah, that's really cool. So uh, with talking about weeds here, obviously it's, it's not the situation anymore that Nicholas talked about where the, the glaciers just uh, melted back north and the climate was was uh you know rapidly changing at that time i guess that's not so different from right now but um the point being we have all these invasive non-native plants that have been either intentionally introduced or incidentally or, or whatever right but they're here is there a point in a prairie's life cycle where it becomes healthy enough to kind of you know maybe through laying down of thatch you know year after year and uh just filling in from a, to a greater stem count or it maybe has enough 
fires that have hit it where a, a prairie can manage itself for weeds pretty well. You know, after say maybe 20 years, the prairie gets thick enough to where it's not so vulnerable to a newcomer really taking off and, and in the prairie, or is that just kind of the new reality where we got these invasive plants on the landscape and it's just always going to be a maintenance issue? Well, once a prairie is pretty well established, uh, it definitely needs fire. Probably, if not every year, every two or three years, almost. Mm. I wouldn't like to wait longer than three years. But that's about our basic tool. But there are some plants um, that are non-native, for example, like sweet clover, white and both white and yellow. And they come from Eastern Europe, and they thrive on fire too. So you don't get rid of all the weeds with fire. Mm. Some you need other methods. Any tips for reed canary grass? Um, what we do here, we spray it with Roundup. Now, back when I was at the college, we had to watch what herbicides really closely, which ones we used, and we used one called Rodeo, which is a derivative of Roundup. So we use that one, and and uh, we we spray to try and keep the reed canary grass down because that's really comes on fast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's scary stuff to have start encroaching on your on your prairie. Yeah. Well, to our listeners' dismay, we will have to wrap up soon because we want to take some of our time to actually visit some of your prairie. So if you're wanting to see any of those pictures or anything, feel free to visit us on Hoxie Native Seeds Facebook or Instagram. But before we go, I've got to know, what has been your favorite thing working with prairie over the past, oh, it's been 50 years almost? Yeah. Wow. 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It just becomes part of me. Like almost every day I think about it. I'll be honest about that. Yeah. And uh, so one nice thing that's happened out here in Iowa is um, you have a pretty nice um, um, conservation reserve program, CRP. There's various different uh, programs they have. That's been real nice for people like me who want to, you know, keep some of the landscape at Prairie and we get some money to pay the taxes and so on. So that's been real nice. That's cool. Well, yeah, we, uh, we really appreciate you. Russell Kurt, the man made of Prairie and the man that makes Prairie. We really appreciate having you on. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And remember everyone, he may be doing legendary work and has spent his whole life doing it. But real change and full conservation happens one yard at a time. Mm-hmm.